This is American and our Hume. Welcome everybody to our Tuesday session. Um, I just wanted to share something very, very quickly. Um, a little bit of etiquette, I guess, which I learned when I was a young convert, which I found was um, really important because I was very quickly exposed, as I think people still are now, to so many people who claim to be experts, um, who we, we know are not experts, but speak on the on the sake uh, on the behalf of Islam. And I thought one of the most valuable lessons I learned from the Sheikh early on is when you are want to be mindful of your accountability. I mean, we know it's like a, a huge sin to say something that isn't true about Islam, and so many people feel like they can just say anything about Islam, even people who give khutbahs. And the you know, Sheikh has said. You know, if people understood their accountability before God, you know, if they say something wrong and if somebody takes that advice and, and acts on it and does something wrong, it's actually on the, the sin of the person who gave that advice wrongfully. And um, so to avoid that type of accountability, um, you know, I learned it was very important just to always be careful to couch, you know, when you're speaking about something, just to say, you know, I'm only speaking for myself, I'm not a scholar, um, this is my opinion, uh, you know, and that um, releases you from that accountability. So, I mean, you'll, you'll often notice, I mean, especially when we're listening to all of the things that we're learning about here, we know the weight of our accountability is really increasing. And so I'm so nervous about, you know, like, mis- um, you know, misdirecting or, you know, misinterpreting or, or miscommunicating something. So um, just as a habit, I have always made it a point to say I'm not a scholar, this is just my opinion. So um, anyway, I, I think that um, I just wanted to share that little tidbit because, you know, we were talking also that um, someone here was um, commenting in the reflection group about how valuable this lesson was and how it was important to share the idea of like affirmative action and social justice and it's kind of like when you take the learning and you apply it to something that is meaningful to you and that you want to talk about instead of saying you know taking that as your own like scholarship you can say you know i learned in this halakha from you know sheikh abul fuddle that you know the surah says this and based on that in my understanding i think there's really a place for us to insist on social justice where we really stand up for the individual, you know, and this is again my opinion. So um, just to point that out, as, as, and, and there's a whole, you know, I learned also there's just so much etiquette involved when it comes to handling knowledge. And it's something that it seems that modern Muslims are really unaware of and it directly affects their accountability before God. So um, it's, it's something that, you know, hopefully people are mindful of. So. That is it, and inshallah, I'm looking forward to another amazing session. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirrahmanirrahim. Wa rahmatullahi ومشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري So inshallah, uh, tonight we'll do Surah Al-Buruj. And uh, as is usual, we will talk first about the revelation and um, the order of revelation and so on. Surah Al-Buruj is a 
by agreement of all authorities, I, I haven't found any difference on this point, that it is was revealed in Mecca, and it is from the early Meccan period. The likelihood is, the high likelihood is that it was revealed um, after Surah al-Shams, right before, right after Surah al-Shams, and right before Surah al-Teen, to al-Teen it was Zaytun wa Tursinin. Um, and of course, the Shams is was Shams Wadokaha, which then means that it was revealed after Surah Al Ikhlas, after Surah Al Najm, after Surah Abbas, Surah Al Najm we covered, Surah Abbas we covered. Of course, Surah Al Ikhlas was covered in the old Halakhas, uh, Surah Al Qadar was also covered in, in the old Halakhas. Um, so if Surat al-Buruj is revealed after Shams and before Atin, so that probably means that it is number 27, 28, maybe 26, but probably 27 in order of revelation. I think it's a fair... Uh, A fair bet that it's number 27 in order of revelation. And of course, this is very interesting because that means it's early Meccan. And as we will see, Surat al Buruj is talking about the physical persecution of Muslims. Um, or physical persecution of believers. And although you'll find in all nearly all the sources they'll say that Surat al Buruj was revealed to um, comfort Muslims who were being persecuted by the Meccans. If you follow the order of revelation, that cannot be completely right. Because that would mean that Surat al-Buruj was revealed before the persecution of Muslims began. So that makes it very interesting because then it is effectively predicting something that is going to be going to be coming in the future it is telling muslims about a persecution that has not befallen them yet but soon will if we want to pin down surat al-buruj even more accurately we would say it was right it was not it was not revealed at the time where the da'wah is in Bayt al-Arqam it's not it was not revealed in the time where the da'wah is secret uh, because as we said before the prophet starts the da'wah first is secret and muslims meet secretly in a home called the house of arqam in mecca and they worship in this house secretly um, 
and the persecution at that point hasn't started, obviously, because it's all very secretive. But that period doesn't last very long, and um, the Dawah goes public, and shortly after the Dawah goes public is when the persecution starts. And Surat al-Buruj would, if, it, if the Order 27 is correct, and I believe it is, then that would mean that it was revealed right at the beginning of the public Dawah. And right before uh, the persecution of Muslims escalates. And when I say persecution, I'm talking about not harassment and discrimination and public insults or mockery and so on, but the actual physical torture that a lot of Muslims were subjected to. Um, so it anticipates something that is going to be coming and it comments on these events that will unfold um, strengthening Muslims, if you will, before they actually take place. So, وَالسَّمَاءِ ذَاتُ الْبُرُوجِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْمَوْعُودِ وَشَاهِدٍ وَمَشْهُودٍ Now, the... <coughs> The, la the language and the and the rhythm, the rhythmic music of these verses is amazing. I mean, just and it is reported that the Prophet ﷺ would uh, regularly read Surah Al-Buruj. Um, reports say that he would read it at Dhuhr prayer, but more likely that he would often read it at night and he would read it out aloud. And there are many um, narratives throughout Islamic history of Arabs hearing Surah Al-Buruj and reacting to the eloquence of the language itself and the music of, of the Surah. So, وَالسَّمَاءِ ذَاتُ الْبُرُوجِ A reasonable translation would be the, the, the heavens or the sky and the buruj contained within. Now, in the Islamic tradition, you'll find an amazing amount written about the meaning of Buruj. And the reason for all the, um, all the discourses about the meaning of Buruj is because the, the term is very intriguing. Yes, on the one hand, it could mean simply the star constellations. And uh, there are the, the known star constellations, uh, which today are known as, you know, the horoscopes and so on. Um, but Buruj is, and in, and in modern Arabic, we, we call the constellations, the star constellations, a Burj. So that's, that, that terminology has survived in modern Arabic. 
But Baruj is an, a very intriguing term because um, the constellations at the time that the Quran is revealed are not necessarily known as a Buruj. Um, but Buruj uh, is a term often used to describe palaces or uh, levels of rooms, like like multiple chambers, um, till our modern day, till the till this very day, when you taught when you, we call a high tower a burj, uh, meaning that it's a it's a high tower. So. Commentators have long discussions as to whether it made sense that the Quran was referring to constellations at the time that the Quran is revealed. It's when, for at the time the Quran is revealed, Buruj is not normally how you refer to these constellations. But in my view, what, what is really fascinating about this term for our modern age, which is even more pertinent than in the pre-modern age, is of what we actually know about the heavens that surround us. If you wanted to, to use a term to describe the way that the heavens are full of galaxies and black holes and uh, a, a, a remarkable diversity of um, manifestations, uh, you, could, you wouldn't find a better word than Baruch. So, while in the pre-modern text, you, you'll often say, you know, they'll often tell you the heavens and the palaces contained within, and they'll often say, and we don't really know what palaces contained within mean. Uh, you know, w w why would there be palaces in the heavens? Uh, I'm not aware of a commentator that was willing to claim that God built actual palaces in the in the skies, but they would say, well, it just... It means palaces, but we don't know what that really means. Uh, I think in the modern age, we can visualize, visualize that much better than our predecessors. So it's very f f interesting. And Allah is swearing or taking an oath when, and as we said, whenever there is a Quranic oath, Often Allah is invoking a reality that is not entirely accessible to us. And Allah is saying, I'm swearing by this because it is a complex reality that you just don't know how complex it is. It's, it's a remarkable, miraculous reality, but you don't know how remarkable or miraculous this reality is. And so when Allah swears by the heavens and the Buruj, it's like Allah saying, you know, you look at the heavens, you think that they're just like your, the, the sky you see from the earth, but they're in fact a reality that is not accessible to you. 
and it's a very complex reality and it's a multiple layered reality as if you are visiting chambers upon chambers. In Sufi-esque tafsirs, whenever, it is a fair bet to say that in Sufi-esque tafsirs, whenever Allah swears by the heavens, um, Sufism was very, very influenced by the old philosophical idea that as above there is below and which of course is an, an old uh, genesis in in um in greek philosophy and so on but the the so the heavens was a symbol in sufi-esque tafsirs to not necessarily to just what is above but what is also below. And so they understood as the heavens within and the Buruj are the layers within that you ascend in order to attain enlightenment. And this is, this is a, you know, a, a very long discourse, but a very, it has strong foundations, or it's very anchored in the tradition. That Allah often reminds you, when Allah swears by the Sama, that Allah is also saying, look up, gaze upwards, in order to understand what is within. You don't gaze upwards for the sake of upwards, but you gaze upwards for the sake of within. Allah is often drawing at our attention to the heavens. Allah is often saying, don't look just at your feet and what is below your feet, but look upwards, raise your head, gaze at the heavens, make it a practice to gaze at the heavens. Why? to understand the, the expanse and the space within. And the expanse and the space within in, in the Sufi-esque literature, the idea of Buruj is layers, maqamat al-ruh, that they are layers of ascending the enlightenment of the soul. And I will tell you more about this in a bit, inshallah. So, a, a typical statement would be, Ishara ila ruh al-insani that al-maqamat fi al-taraqi wa-darajat When they comment on the sama that al-buruj, that Ishara ila ruh al-insani that al-maqamat fi al-taraqi wa-darajat Basically, a statement that means that You cannot rush enlightenment on the one hand because you can't skip the levels. 
But you must understand that, and, and, and I'm underscoring this idea, and you'll see why in, as we get to the end, that you must understand if you live your life only looking, gazing downwards at where your feet um, lands, um, you will miss out the, the entire purpose. But you gaze upwards, but you don't become addicted to gazing upwards for the entertainment of gazing upwards. But gazing upwards opens up your awareness of the self. And awareness of the self, you understand that you cannot jump from darkness to light, but you must go through the layers, al-maqamat. And enlightenment is a systematic effort at elevation from the lowest to the highest. Okay. So this is why you find a lot written about the Sama' that al-Buruj, three words that take a great deal of commentary and debates about various things contained, but we'll cover some of this, inshallah, in a bit. وَالْيَوْمَ mawud And the promised day. Now, again, you find in the tradition, if you, for instance, look at Tabari, you'll find um, all types of reports about is the promised day, the final day, is the promised day, uh, Friday, is the promised day, the day of Arafah at Hajj, um, the thing about all of these traditions is that none of them are, are authoritative. And it's because none of them are authoritative, we go back to understanding the promised day within the context of the surah itself, within the context of the discourse of the surah. So if at one level, the promised day is the hereafter, and that flows with the rest of the meaning of the surah. In Sufi-esque tafsirs, especially, they say that the for the elevating soul, there is the day, a day, when you actually reach enlightenment, when the hujub, when the veils are removed. And you could live your entire life and only understand from the promised day the, the day of resurrection. But for the student of enlightenment, before the day of resurrection, the dream of a promised day that transpires here on earth. And that's the day where the veils that cloud human understanding, your ability to attain enlightenment, are removed. And again, I'll come back to this. Okay. وَشَاهِدٍ وَمَشْهُودٍ قُتِلَ أَصْحَابُ الْأُخْدُودِ 
النار ذات الوقود إذ هم عليها قعود وهم على ما يفعلون بالمؤمنين بالمؤمنين شهود. So and the promised day was shahid and and the witness and witnessed. We'll come back to this. Qutila Ashab al-Ukhdud is like a condemnation of a people that are described as Ashab al-Ukhdud. The study Quran translates it as the inhabitants of the pit. But Ashab al-Ukhdud is not so much the inhabitants of the pit, but the people of the pit. The people who created the pit. The lit fire, the igniting fire, is whom alayha qood, and those who built and and nurtured this fire. Qood is not just you are sitting around the fire, but you are in this context, you have you are feeding this fire. And the, the, the main point وَهُمْ عَلَى مَا يَفْعَلُونَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ شُهُودٍ they, we'll talk about who they are, are witnesses to what they are doing to the believers. So as the, as the, 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 the surah implies, there are people who are being burned in a pit of fire, they're being tortured, and they are people who are doing the burning, and there is a process of witnessing. Ishahid wa mashhud, those who are witnessing and those who are being witnessed. So Surah al-Buruj is referring to an ordeal, a horrible ordeal, an ordeal in which believers are persecuted horribly persecuted because they are being thrown in a pit of fire and that of course then begs the question who are the people of the pit and who are the victims of the pit and subhanallah here you get quite a bit of reports in the tradition about where and who precisely this took place. Some of them are, are quite fantastical and I'm not going to pause I'm, I'm, I'm not going to uh, spend time on, on the ones that are really far-fetched. 
but for the people who people of Mecca the most immediate incident that they seem to be aware of or had at least um, heard of because it was still alive in Meccan lore is an incident in Yemen um, involving a ruler called Zunawas. Zunawas, Yemen at one time, major parts of Yemen was Jewish. Um, and at, because it was conquered by an Israelite king, and the Israelite king targeted and persecuted Christians in Yemen. And Zunawas uh, was known to have tried to forcibly convert the Christians of Yemen to Judaism. And among the stories said about, or among the, the, the mythology about Zuna West is that he in fact dug a pit and you either converted to his faith, Judaism, or you, you were thrown in a pit of fire. Of course, you know, in the traditions, there are exaggerations. They tell you that he executed 70,000 and things like that. That's highly unlikely uh, because Yemen was not so densely populated at the time where you can execute 70,000. But, you know, often when, when you read things like that in the tradition, it means that a lot of people are executed, so many that, you know, they, they just said it must have been something like 70,000 because there were just so many people that were killed. Um, but this was not the only candidate. Um, there was in a sham a, a Christian ruler called Abatamos Arumi. I don't know the English equivalent of that. Um, I didn't have time to look it up. And Abu Thomas uh, is reported to have persecuted especially people who did not want to embrace his version of Christianity and again burned them to death. There is another story, this time from Persia, with Bakhut Nasr, or Bakhtu Nasr, I don't, that's how it's pronounced in the Arabic tradition, um, where he reportedly dug a pit and burned the followers of the prophet Daniel, Daniel, who were Christians. Now, what is interesting, and this did not escape Muslim theologians, is that in all these narratives, whether the persecuted are Christians, or the persecuted are Jews, or the persecuted are Ahnaf, uh, Ahnaf meaning the Christians who did not, in this context, Christians who did not accept the Trinity, or the divinity of Jesus. Um, the 
the the main point is that you have people who are believers in God who insist on their belief about God and as a result they are tortured to death or killed um, in a very gruesome way. There is another narrative by the way that um, uh, Tabari and Ibn Kathir both uh, <coughs> support as the most authentic, um, which comes out of Persia, um, and it is often reported about Makhut Nasr, um, that he, and it's reported, the, it's attributed to the Imam Ali, and the report goes something like this, that um, Omar ibn al-Khattab, after Omar ibn al-Khattab passes away, this is after he is, of course, he's a Khalifa and he then dies or he's uh, um, assassinated. And um, there is the, a discussion among Muslims as to whether the Zoroastrians are a people of the book, the Majus are a people of the book, or they're not to not to be treated as people of the book. And as the narrative goes that Imam Ali says no, they are they are a people of the book. In fact they they used they used to be a people of the book, but as time went by they corrupted their religion and and so on. And in this context he tells the following story that um, Bakhut Nasr, or at the time Bakhut Nasr, that uh, uh, drinking alcohol in, in Zoroastrianism, among the things that they allowed themselves is the consumption of alcohol. And that the king at the time um, got drunk one night and uh, had sex with his sister. And then after he, the next day, coming out of the, the, the state of intoxication, him and his sister freaked out, and we're sitting talking about, well, now this happened, what do we do? And they decided then that he would go and announce that from now on it is God's law that you can have, you can marry your sister. And that upon doing that, there, he met a lot of opposition. And first, he tried arresting and flogging people who opposed uh, the decree allowing incest, effectively. And the opposition continued, so he started sentencing people to death uh, for if they opposed that decree. And then eventually, he burned the those who opposed the incest decree in mass, put them to death by burning them in a fire. Now, why is this significant? Well, 
Note here, in a lot of the narratives, the issue is whether you follow my religion or not. Right? But in this narrative, attributed to Imam Ali, the issue is not whether you follow my religion or not, but you follow my interpretation of religion or not. If you have a legal mind, you'll immediately see the significance of that. Because if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, look at those who persecute the believers, I am sure modern day Muslims would say, well, you know, it's 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 talking about non-believers persecuting believers. It's not talking about a Muslim persecuting another Muslim, for instance. Because in so many Muslim countries, Muslims persecute each other, right? You jail people, you torture people. And the temptation, if you talk to a lot of Azhari sheikhs, they will say, oh, Surah Al-Buruj is not talking about all the people in prison in Egypt, uh, the 100,000 political prisoners are being tortured, no, it's not talking about that. It's not talking about, you know, imprisoning people like the Ikhwan or other Islamists and torturing them. It's talking about non-believers persecuting believers. Now, of course, that that's that's very myopic, as we'll, we'll see in a second. But the Imam Ali narrative takes the, the, the wind out of this argument. And it says, basically... No, it's talking about a, a disagreement within the faith itself about illegal matter. You know, in this case, it happened to be whether incest is allowed or not, or marrying your sister is allowed or not, but nevertheless, that the persecution takes place because of an interpretive issue. And of course, the... the, the um, it is, it is not a coincidence that it is attributed to Imam Ali, in my view, whether he actually said it or not, because that interpretation was not favored by the Umayyads the Umayyads and, and so on, because it, it has a clear um, political connotations. Now, does it really matter whether it is the incident that happened in Yemen, the incident that happened in Sham, the incident that happened in Persia, the incident that happened in Iraq. As commentators I agree with said, no, it doesn't. doesn't matter. It, it could refer to all of them or none of them. The point is that it is talking about a situation where a people torture another people for their beliefs and they throw them in fire. Now, of course, the most pedantic interpreters of the Quran said, well, you know, Allah is condemning those who torture others using fire, but Allah is not talking about who torture those who torture others using, for instance, whips or... Uh, sticks, or even 
uh, one of them, b believe it or not, said, "Well, you know, if 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 you if you strike in the in the center with a sword and cut off their limb, that's not burning them in a pit of fire. Now that 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 I would call the Hashawi approach. That is, that's when you when you are insistent on doing what is wrong." You want to justify the wrong path. So you become like a sleazy, you know, lawyer who's making these sleazy distinctions in order to kill the spirit of the law. Don't be a sleazy lawyer. Um, be an honorable lawyer. And an honorable lawyer would understand that, no, the, the point is persecution and torment and suffering. Now, note that in Surah Al-Buruj, this expression that is central in verse 3, وَشَاهِدٍ وَمَشْهُودٍ The witnesser and the witnessed. And then, which says, وَهُمْ عَلَى مَا يَفْعَلُونَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ شُهُودٍ And they are, witness, are, are witnesses to what is being done to the believers. Now this gave the Muslim theologians considerable amount of pause. And he said, well, who are... And, and of course, they, they gave them considerable amount of pause because early Muslims paused at this. And there are various reports from the, attributed to the Prophet ﷺ, but unfortunately, um, none of them are, are, are of high reliability. Anyway, so we know that Revelation in the Quran that comes later, after Surah Al-Buruj, the idea of witness, uh, witnessing becomes central and core to Quranic morality. So when, for instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us later on that the Prophet was sent as a witness, you, were, you Muslims are supposed to be witness, witnesses upon humanity, and the Prophet is supposed to be a witness upon you. And in Quranic theology, again in revelation that comes later, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that you must be witnesses for truth, even if it's against yourselves. Um, or when later on it becomes anchored that a martyr, the, the, the moral description for a martyr is a witness. We call a martyr in Islam a shaheed. Why? Because by sacrificing their life, they are supposed to witness the injustice of others. That is why, by the way, 
if you die committing an injustice, you cannot be a martyr. The whole idea of martyrdom is that you are witnessing an injustice. So your death must be unjust in order to be a martyr. If your death is not unjust, then you're not a martyr. It, it cannot be. It just it completely is a contradiction to the whole foundations of Islamic theology. Leave alone if your death is committed in the course of committing an injustice, then that, that's completely a contradiction in terms. It, it cannot be. If you're committing an injustice, you cannot be a martyr. The whole idea of Shahada is that you are losing your life witnessing an injustice. If you're committing an injustice, then you're not a martyr. If you're not witnessing an injustice, you're not a martyr. So, وَشَاهِدٌ وَمَشْهُودٌ This, of course, is critical to the heart of the theology. Whenever persecution takes place, it is as if the entire universe witnesses this persecution. Allah witnesses this persecution. The angels witness this persecution. But also, humans are supposed to be witness witnesses upon this persecution so visualize it you are gazing upon the heavens full with its chambers and its realities and its layers and its dimensions and injustice occurs upon the face of this earth an injustice like the trench and throwing people in the trench to burn and die and as we said it doesn't have to be burning any type such types of suffering what happens in the heavens Allah witnesses the angels witness, but what if human beings are not witnessing in a way that is consistent with what Allah witnesses and what the angels witness? This is when human beings become distant from Allah's mercy, as we will see from Al-Ghafur Al-Wadud. So, Surah Al-Buruj right away is delivering something that should shake your core. If there are people suffering an injustice upon this earth, you better make sure that the way that you testify to that injustice 
is consistent with the way Allah testifies to that injustice and the way angels testify to that injustice. Because if you are a shahid, a witness, not, witness here doesn't mean that you're actually seeing it, but a witness means that you, are, you attest to the truth of a thing. But if you, your testimony is wrongful or oblivious or negligent, it is not consistent with Allah and the angels and the prophets, then you're in trouble. And that is among the things, the many, 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 many things where I tell you Islam is the religion of justice. How can it be that there is so much injustice among Muslims and Muslims think that this is consistent with Islamic theology? It cannot be. I'm not just talking off the top of my head. I am talking because I am anchored in this tradition and I spent all my life studying it. And I studied how from the very beginning of Islam, from the very genesis of the Quran, from everything that this tradition was about and should be about. So the Shahid al-Mashhud, and that is why you find a great deal written in the Islamic tradition about the whole concept of Shahada and injustice. If you are not going to testify by sacrificing your life, and it's not always the case that that's the best way of testifying, because sometimes you could testify by truth, by speaking the truth, or preserving the truth, or protecting the truth. Sometimes, and this again, it's not, there's, great deal about this written that if if people are being persecuted and their persecution is going to be forgotten and if you go and you give up your life but you will be just another one killed just like the people who are being persecuted it is more worthy in Allah's eye that you testify that you become a shaheed by preserving the truth by protecting the truth than by simply sacrificing your life. And that is why when the Prophet says the ink of a scholar is heavier than the blood of a martyr, it doesn't mean the ink of a scholar who talks about how you grow their beard or how you wear your turban. The ink of a scholar who is testifying to what a martyr testifies to. The ink of a scholar who testifies to what a martyr testifies to. The blood of a martyr testifies. The ink of a scholar testifies. But what the Prophet ﷺ is saying is, when the ink of a scholar testifies, it is heavier than the blood of a martyr. So, in this... is a rather 
ominous forewarning. The Muslims of Mecca, as we of course know in hindsight, were not thrown in a pit of fire, but they will face persecution like the people of the trench. Many of them will be tortured in various gruesome ways, and some of them will even lose their lives for many years before they're allowed to either migrate to Abyssinia or to migrate to Medina. And even after the migration to Medina, remember that some of them, for instance, are captured by the Meccans and tortured to death or, you know, told, like the people of the trench, told to renounce Muhammad or to curse the Muhammad, otherwise they will be tortured to death. And, we, you know, there's a famous story of Osama who is tortured until he curses Muhammad and he, when he goes to the Prophet and he's in, in pieces about it and the Prophet says, no, you know, there's no sin upon you if it, you, you, you did the right thing. Um, so what's remarkable is that they, those early Muslims, as they're receiving this, if you try to put yourself in their shoes, this must have been anxiety producing, but at the same time calming. And as we'll see why calming and why reassuring. This is uh, eight. And they, this is the study Quran says, and they took vengeance on them, not but they, for that they believed in the mighty, the, the praised. الَّذِي لَهُ مُلْكُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضُ وَاللَّهُ عَلَىٰ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ شَهِيدٍ This is nine, and, and unto Allah belongs the sovereignty over the heavens and earth, and God is the witness over all things. Again, this uh, the concept of shahada, of Allah ala kulli shayin shahid. Inna al-ladina fatanu al-mu'minina wal-mu'minati thumma lam yatubu falahum azabu jahannam walahum azabu al-hariq. This is ten. Um, those who persecute. The believing men and women, and then and do not repent, theirs will be the punishment of hell, and there will be the punishment of burning. Now, notice here, and we'll come back to it. It says hell, azabu jahannam, and then says azabu al-hariq, and this is something that Muslim commentators pause that, and I'll explain why in a second. And that's juxtaposed to إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ لَهُمْ جَنَّاتٌ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ ذَلِكَ الْفَوْزُ الْكَبِيرِ That's juxtaposed with 11, those who perform righteous deeds, 
there shall be gardens with rivers, rivers running below, and this is Kabir, this is the supreme uh, triumph. Okay. Now, so this completes the picture that the reason these people are being targeted is a matter of conviction and belief and Allah is not just affirming the the, the role of witnessing but the ultimate consequences for the persecutors azabu jahannam wa azabu al-hariq that Jahannam, Hellfire, and Harik. We'll, we'll, talk, we'll comment on this in a second. Juxtaposed to those who believe and do good deeds that they have al-fawz kabir Now, on the one hand, you, you could say, well, what God is saying that those who believe and do good deeds, they will, their reward will come in the hereafter. But, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ فَتَنُوا الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ Fatanu means persecuted. But do you remember the word fitna? And fitna is not just to persecute, but to cause people to go astray. So, how do you do fitna upon believing men and women? Well, one way is that you burn them in a pit of fire. But another way is that you witness the injustice and fail to testify to the injustice. So in other words, what is right and wrong becomes diluted because people are no longer testifying as to what is right or wrong. This is a fitna. It's a fitna because it confuses whether Allah's side is about justice. It confuses whether it's right or wrong to persecute people. It confuses whether it's right or wrong to torture people. And it, can, it turns people off from the path of God. So, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ فَتَنُوا الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ ثُمَّ لَمْ يَتُوبُوا So, if they repent, it's one thing. And this is a reference to the Meccans themselves because some of them will persecute and Allah knows that Allah is telling them, some of you are going to persecute believers and then later on convert to Islam. 
Well, you fall under this category of people who have persecuted others, but then repented. But if you persecute or you contribute to the fitna, leading believers astray, and the most important part is that by failing in your obligation of shahada is contributing to the fitna. So, Azabu Jahannam, we understand. You're going to go to hellfire. I wish Muslims would pay attention because the amount of injustice that exists in Muslim lands and the fact that so many Muslims think that Islam is about what you wear and what, you know, all these superficial things rather than the core of what this faith is about is, is very, very disturbing. Hellfire, but Azab al-Hariq, when say the punishment of burning, well, yeah, you know, you could say, well, burning in, in, because in hellfire there is fire, right? Um, but many commentators uh, going into long grammatical explanations say that Azam al-Hariq is not necessarily just the actual fire but لَهُمْ عَذَابُ الْإِحْتَرَاقُ بِالْحِرْسِ وَالتَّعَبُ وَالْخَوْفِ وَالْجَزَعَ It's like you, the, the, the punishment of a churning soul. It's the best way I can put it. That your soul itself becomes unsettled with tab, exhaustion, khawf, fear, jaza, anxiety. You will experience, if this is the path that you take, the path of persecution, witnessing persecution, and failing to witness persecution, and truthfully witness persecution, meaning attest to the truth, and failing to stop persecution, you are doomed in the hereafter, but as so many commentators noted, you are also, your path on this earth is not a pleasant one. You will live in fear, anxiety, a constant state of unsettlement. As the Sufi asked of seers say, the blessing of Allah is taken away from you. The barakah is taken away from you. Now, when it says that the believers who believe and do good deeds, they have... Heavens with 
rivers flowing underneath. Um, just in, and we've already encountered this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but in Sufi-esque tafsirs, which they always take rivers flowing underneath, not necessarily referring to a physical reality, but to spiritual states and various states of enlightenment. And so when it says in Fawz al-Kabir, this is the big victory or the great triumph. And Sophie Asklef sees they always say the, the true triumph, and I'll, I'll just read the Arabic. That the true triumph is that you exist on this earth unaffected by the tribulations and the pain of this earth because you understand the truth of things. But whether, you know, you take it at the deeper level that the Sufi-esque tafsirs take, that if you, the real triumph is to understand that this is, this world must be seen in proper perspective. And what calamities befall you are not the end of things. And not as huge as our human psychology often pictures them to be. Um, or you take it as those who believe and do good deeds um, ultimately will, will be the ones that gain the grace of Allah. Both meanings obviously are supported by the text. Now here, at this point, Surah Al-Buruj says, إِنَّ بَطْشَ رَبِّكَ لَشَدِيدٌ Again, the language is remarkable, but this is um, at 12, okay. Um, the study Quran says, um, Truly thy Lord's, Lord's assault is severe. Truly it is God who originates and brings back. And God is the forgiving, the loving, possessor of the throne, glorious, doer of whatsoever God wills. Literally correct, but substantively there is much more. Understand that although it appears the persecution of the persecuted appears very that's what we call botch. Botch is like when 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 you do something so severe like throw people in fire or torture people, that's botch. 
or you kill someone unjustly, that's batsh. Or you, yeah, um, if you imprison someone unjustly, that's also batsh in, in human terms. So although it appears to you that the persecution by the persecutors is the ultimate batsh, but understand that in the proper perspective of things, it is God that has the final word as to the as to what the, the fate. This is again the, the common theme of justice at the ultimate end. And it is God who begins and ends. And it is God who is forgiving and most loving. Dhul Arsh al-Majid, the possessor of the glorious throne, who is the fa'alun lima yurid, who is the ultimate sovereign over all things. Now, this from the point that it says inna batsha rabbika lashadid and i would translate it god's vengeance is severe rather than god's um how did they put it um god's assault is severe i i mean i don't i don't like the words god's assault is severe because you don't understand what it's talking about but God's vengeance is severe. If you allow yourself to look at injustice, acts of injustice, as if they are of no consequence, your own belief in justice will unravel. So if you see what powerful people do to the disempowered and say, well, there's nothing beyond this. There is no God and there is no vengeance. You will no longer believe in the possibility of justice or in the very principle of justice because ultimately it is not upheld in the ultimate narrative of the universe. And I've got to tell you, you know, not until I read Hannah Arendt um, and the way that the Holocaust and World War II affected her philosophy did I actually understand how true that is. Hannah Arendt was, once upon a time, a moralist philosopher. But what she witnessed in World War II made her completely lose belief in the very idea that human beings are capable of, or that justice even as a concept is a coherent idea. And unfortunately, 
she gave free rein to her skepticism and wrote the, all the works that now have become ideological mainstays for the whole neocon movement. Uh, you know, if, if you... Um, uh, remarkably, somehow, Hannah Arendt was, was married to new, a new form of Christianity. I, I don't understand how, because it, it would be accurate to say that she's very skeptical of the very idea of morality and ethics. And how could that be made a part of the neocon Christian movement? But it was to the point that what was his name? That if you if you worked in his law firm, you had to read Hannah Arendt first. Do you mean Ayn Rand? Yeah, I saw. Oh, sorry, Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. Why am I saying Hannah Arendt? Ayn Rand, right? That's what you said, right? Mm -hmm. I, Ayn Rand. No, sorry, Ayn Rand, not Hannah Arendt. Scratch that. Stuff Complete mismemory. Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. Um, what was the name of the guy who, like, if you worked in his law firm as an associate, you had to read uh, Ayn Rand's uh, um, before you started your job? He's a very famous Republican. He's still around. Uh, he might even be a senator. I, I don't remember, but maybe his name will come to me. Anyway, I mean, she was very influential with people like Dick Cheney, uh, a whole people who, you know, invaded Iraq. Um, you're going to create out of order, out of chaos, creative chaos, the whole notion of... And the the idea that the... Ted Cruz? Yeah. Ted Cruz? Ted Cruz? Was, no, it, it's not Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz wasn't in a law firm. Paul Ryan, I don't think so. Paul Ryan, I don't think so. Um, uh, he's, I saw it in one of the documentaries about the neocons. And, and he was saying, he was actually bragging about like, oh, no, no one can work for me without reading Ayn Rand. Uh, Ayn Rand. Okay. So... Um, If you do not, it was Paul Ryan. Paul, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan. Yeah. Ah, it is, so it is him. Okay, Paul Ryan. It's Paul Ryan who required you to read <laughs> Iron Rand before you were for him. Um. Yeah, amazing. But I, I actually in in the, at UCLA Law School. Uh, um, what was the group that was telling me that uh, you have to read? Um, um, they came and gave um, a, a, a symposium. Federalists. Federalists. The, the, the Federalists, that's right. The Federalists were in the law school and they... And so I got into a discussion with them about, um, how, you know, Ayn Rand and federal, the, the whole, what they believe is federalism. It didn't go anywhere except I got free books out of it, so I, I was happy. Um, but just 
you know, just it, 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 it's really if 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 ultimately there is no cosmic justice, um, the world becomes a very cold and lonely place, and the the powerful can justify all types of things because moral theory is on very shaky grounds uh, without something that is external to its own inner logic. Anyway, um, so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, reminds us that إِنَّ بَطْشَ رَبِّكَ لَشَدِيدُ وَإِنَّا هُوَ Don't think Allah ends and starts. Don't think that this is the end just because you see the persecuted, the persecutors persecute the persecuted. But then this remarkably tender balancing out, not only is Allah forgiving, but Allah is loving. If you come towards Allah, not only will Allah forgive, but Allah will love you. So, I don't know if I, if I, um, oh yeah, okay. And, al-wadud, it means al-muhib, this is, first of but anyway, The Prophet said a hadith that is often quoted here and elsewhere in the Quran when when we talk about al-wadud, uh, and it's this is a good place to to because you don't hear this hadith very much in the modern age, but anyway. The hearts by Allah, the instinct that Allah placed in human hearts, it loves whoever is kind to it. And it is repulsed by whoever is unkind to it. It loves whoever is kind to it and repulsed by whoever is unkind to it. And we know from human experience that's true. But here is the question that the Prophet then posed. How about that instinct with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Do we do we allow this instinct to carry through with Allah? Now, the Sufis go beyond this and say that, in fact, when you really understand your relationship with Allah, you'll understand that even that it is not possible for Allah to be unkind to you. Even when you suffer, Allah is not being unkind to you. But they say that that's a higher level of understanding. 
But the vast majority of human beings avail themselves of Allah's kindness all the time without extending to Allah what they extend to each other. If you're nice to me, I start feeling warm towards you. Allah is nice to us day after day, minute after minute in our lives. And we just go on. These are exactly the types of veils that the what I've been calling the Sufi-esques talk about. So, when Allah then comments on all of this, we're saying, Dhul Arsh al-Majid. The possessors of the glorious throne, Okay, but what is the Arsh? Of course, on the one hand, we cannot, we have no frame of reference for the Allah throne. Except for a hadith from the Prophet, except a hadith from the Prophet, that says or there is another version the heart of the knowing believer the believer who truly knows is the throne of Allah or is the throne of Ar-Rahman So look at what Surah Al-Buruj, if you, and importantly, the hadith of the Prophet is mentioned in the context of Surah Al-Buruj, that if you look within and you are able to lift the veils, so that you see Allah upon the throne of your heart. Your very relationship to the, your role as a witness for truth becomes very different. You don't live in fear. You don't live tempted by the things that tempt people to go to, to the corrupts people. You understand that you exist in this world. There, there is a story in this about the story of the people of the trench. I mean, it's probably not historical, but it's it's often said to to emphasize this point that uh, you know, as people were being thrown in the trench to burn, there was a woman carrying her child, and uh, the the whoever the the you know whether in Yemen or Persia or whatever in Sham, who was so the the okay so you know you are you are you going to renounce your God or are you going to be thrown in the trench? 
So as she came close to the fire, it, it, she felt the heat and she got scared. And she said, wait, wait, I'm ready to renounce. And according to the story, her son, who's a child, tells her, mother, don't be scared. We are on the true path. And then when she hears her son, she changes her mind. And, and of course, in, as you would, can expect, this um, metaphor uh, is often told in Sufi-esque literature to tell you that if you truly understand what is on the throne of your heart, things don't scare you. Uh, and that by, you know, when this woman, her child reminds her of what is on the throne of her heart, the idea of burning to death doesn't scare her anymore. Um, just remember, lest you say to yourself, well, no, that never happens. No, there are people all over the Muslim world that, as we speak, suffer in the prisons of tyrants because they believe exactly what we are talking about. They, they know the risks, they take the risks, they suffer the consequences, and it is, it is because we betrayed justice that we allow this to continue on happening, and because we've turned our religion into a religion about hijabs and beards and robes and I don't know what else, that this continues to happen. Okay. Now, is there guidance? I said that the Buruj in um, you can you can read a great deal about the Buruj and the layers of of ascension al maqamat until you you can reach the point of seeing Allah as sitting upon the throne of your heart. I'm going to share with you, and if you're interested in knowing more, I can tell you about them in the, maybe in the Q&A, or I'm going to tell you the ones that um, I've used as a guide in my life. This doesn't, it's not a tariqah. I am not the leader of a tariqah. I'm not the founder of a tariqah. Um, I wouldn't dare to claim that, but this is solely for me, what I've done for myself. First is an iman, and again, I, this is not all original to me, meaning that I've Bar, I've learned from a great deal of authorities in order to share with you what I'm... Take it or leave it, it's up to you. An iman is, of course, first, to believe. A tawbah, repentance, is second. Teaching yourself a sabr, the virtue of patience. Patience was everything. Rush nothing. Don't betray patience in anything. Al-Wara, 
err on the side of not angering God. If something could possibly be haram, if it is one of the serious harams, avoid it. Al-Zuhd. Train yourself not to care about the things that matter the most materially. Um, don't be attached to physical possessions except books. <laughs> except books. That's the only thing you're allowed to be attached to. At-tawakkul, trust Allah. Learn to trust Allah and work on accepting. Pray to Allah to present you with the best. But when you're presented with it, don't tell Allah it's not the best. Ar-Ridha, it's the, the, the handmaiden of tawakkul. Ar-Ridha is to try to teach yourself to be content inside. Don't covet what you don't have. Um, sometimes I've taken this to little maybe extremes, like when people tell me, taste something that I know, especially when I was younger, that I couldn't afford. If I couldn't afford it, then I didn't want to taste it. Um, there's no point. I don't like to um, to be a tourist in expensive places because if I can't live there, why, why do I want to experience it? Al-Muraqaba Learn to watch yourself and catch your own sins and faults before anyone else. If and finally, Al Mushahada rise to the obligation of being a witness and testifying. Testify in your heart, testify in your tongue, testify with your pen, testify in everything that Allah might ask you why you fail to attest to. For whatever it's worth. Okay, moving on. Um, oh, should we break for Maghrib? Okay, well, we'll break for Maghrib and come and continue, inshallah. Okay. So, and then, subhanAllah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then pauses this rhetorical question 
هل أتاك حديث الجنود فرعون وثمود؟ Have you heard Have you heard tell of حديث الجنود the armies or the hosts of Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, and Thamud, and it will be question mark. And of course, this is a rhetorical question because Allah knows that if the Prophet had heard of the hosts or the armies of the Pharaoh, and the people of Thamud. The people of Thamud was for the Prophet Saleh, the, the Prophet of, uh, the Arab Prophet. And Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Moses. And, but what is even more intriguing is that at the time Surah Al-Buruj is revealed, the Quran has not said much about um, either the the Pharaoh or Saleh and the, the people of Thamud. And so the and the rhetorical question is obviously not just to the Prophet but to all the audience of the Quran. And so when you have this, the, the, the Qur'an posing this type of question, to then comment on it, that those who disbelieve, implying that they are, are, are persistent in denial. And, but, Nothing of this is out of Allah's purview and Allah's sovereignty. So that, of course, begs the question, why the rhetorical question at this juncture? Well, one, the hosts and the armies of the Pharaoh, we've we already know from Surat, if those of you who uh, followed Surat Taha, we already know that the, the armies of the Pharaoh were as far removed from the act of witnessing as possible. When Allah swears by Shahidin wa Mashhud, Allah swears by those who testify. And we know later that this is going to be even more central to the ethics of the Quran. That the, the hosts or the armies of the Pharaoh follow blindly. And they follow blindly to any, not just act of cruelty, but even act of suicide. They are the, the epitomize the herd mentality. But so were the armies of Thamud. Um, the, the armies of Thamud and the Prophet Saleh, even when they witnessed 
a, an astounding miracle it, that completely broke with the laws of nature. When the leaders of Thamud commanded their forces to kill the camel, uh, the Saleh's camel, Although they knew that this was a miraculously created camel, they followed obediently. But as there is a, a, um, a difference that we know about the people of the Pharaoh and the people of Thamud, or the, the followers of the Pharaoh and the followers of Thamud, the followers of the Pharaoh obeyed the Pharaoh in his claim of being a divine being or a semi-god. And they oppressed the Israelites ruthlessly with a great deal of arrogance. The Israelites to them were subhuman and had no entitlements had no rights uh, the, 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 so the, there is that the element of arrogance in the obedient but arrogant the armies of Thamud were infamous for what has been described as a tabad dani um, meaning um, they were a sleazy they 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 were known for um uh, how do i describe this like the 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 type that would give you promises and then break them um uh, they would smile in your face one day and then stab you in the back the next day uh they they were like um, not just no they they were not proud, the Qawm Samud were not known for their arrogance, but rather for just their opportunism. Um, what they wanted, they wanted, and they, they, they'll achieve it through whatever ends, whatever means they can, uh, even if it is the most sleazy means. So, at that point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ask this rhetorical question, have you reflected upon the armies that followed Pharaoh and the armies that followed Thamud? Both are hosts or armies as far removed from the type of ethical stature that is required for witnessing. Both followed the rulers in acts of great cruelty with the material difference that one did it with great hubris and, and arrogance and the other were opportunists and as sleazy as they come. Now, the Sufi-esque tafsirs in particular took this a step further and said, well, Allah is not just telling you your persecutors 
that those who persecute often have the herd mentality to their rulers. And they come of these two types that whether they are arrogant and they, they think that they're God's gifts of the world or they're basically opportunist and sleazy. You know, the, the, the rapists, the pillagers, the looters, the whatever. But the Sufi-esque tafsir said that at this point, Allah is saying what prevents human beings from being testifiers to the truth. Look within to, to expel the armies of the hosts, and, and hosts would be more appropriate here because um, the, the hosts of the Pharaoh and the host of Thamud from within you, because these are going to be, whether you are an opportunist that just wants to Saturday, you know, get a quick fix, get a quick pleasure, or you are ultimately arrogant and you think you're entitled uh, to be as selfish as you are, these will prevent you from witnessing uh, to these ultimate acts of injustice. And then this is sealed Whenever the Qur'an, stylistically, the Qur'an wants to tell you, I've just given you a message to reflect upon in a, a, a sort of a, a, a primordial message, a timeless message, a message to reflect upon in eternity. Because this will be seen again and again and again by humanity. It ends by reminding you of the nature of this Qur'an. Not at the beginning, but at the end. And so it ends, This is a glorious Qur'an in in a eternal primordial tablet. Now, what is this tablet? We don't know. And there's no way we can know. But that the lessons of this Quran are timeless. Whenever the Quran invokes the idea of it will always be for a timeless lesson. So, Surah Al-Buruj it seems that several, we do have reports of Muslims asking the Prophet basically after Surah Al-Buruj are things going to get much worse for us? And the Prophet says, yes, they will. So they, they understood that this is basically telling them, you know, okay, hold on. Um, things are go going to get worse. 
but this in throughout Islamic history and uh, whether you are talking about um, the 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 rebellion of Imam al Hussein or the various Alawi rebellions in Islamic history, or even the um, um, the, re, um, the rebellions during the Amal period of the descendants of the 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 the, uh, uh, the faction of Zubair uh, against the Amawis, or even the rebellions of Zanj, who were slaves in Islamic history. What is Surat al-Buruj has always, always features in the discourses on justice, and there is a um, uh, there is a book called Mausuat al-Azab. It was written by a modern Syrian scholar. It's an encyclopedia of all the torture methods that different rulers in Islamic history employed. But it's a gruesome encyclopedia, don't read it. But the, the most interesting part for me in it is the reported speeches of people who are being executed unjustly by... Um, by various rulers in different periods. And you often find in these speeches references to Ashab al-Ukhdud. So the person who is going to be put to death or the person who is going to be crucified or the person... They didn't crucify the way Christians crucified. They crucified by uh, tying someone up to a palm tree. Um, not the not the Christian not the Roman crucifixion of nails through the hands and so on, but anyway, that the speech they will often give is to say you know a reference to Ashab al which means that it lived in Muslim memory in exactly the way that I've explained as a powerful statement against the act of persecuting for belief. And no, here, the, both the, the, those who were being persecuted were not Muslim, but yet the Quran, so it, it's the, the persecution for belief. And the failure of society to witness the injustice, meaning to stand up against injustice. Okay, alhamdulillah, and that's Surah al Alhamdulillah, thank you so much. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, thank you so much for another very powerful, amazing surah, mm -hmm. tafsir. Um, does anybody have a question to start off? I can tell you do. <laughs> <laughs> don't. You don't? Joe. Not a question. Shayan. Anybody? Alhamdulillah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this should be very helpful. 
the Sheikh said that he could elaborate on the maqamat yes. in the Q&A. Okay. Can you please elaborate on the maqamat in the Q&A? <laughs> and I assume the whole surah is the vicar. Yeah, the whole surah is the vicar. Um, Great question. <laughs> I mean, what elaboration do you want on the Muhammad? Um The the only thing I'll t uh, I mean, the first elaboration I'll say is, it's you know, don't feel obligated in any way to to follow these. Um, there are there are. Um, many ways to the removal of the veils and ways that have been set out by people far more uh, far more intelligent and pious than myself um, numerous these are as I don't know. I I don't even I can't even tell you like it, it, uh, how old they are. But uh, from the various readings and various experiences, as I became convinced that the Bourouge, in fact, there there are chambers obviously in the heavens, but we. We know nothing about these chambers, even if we can see with a telescope something that are millions of light years away um, and take very nice pictures of them. What is the truth? Who knows? But the chambers within are... Um, they become fogged up and the fog becomes a veil. And how do you cleanse the, cleanse the chamber, chambers within? Obviously, I mean, you, you these elements, as I, I've uh, shared, are the ones that I, through trial and error, I followed. Um, so I, for instance, thought I might have wara before tawbah, so meaning piety, but I found that sin prevents the truth of wara. Um, that if unless I repent, genuinely and truthfully repent, um, all my attempts at piety and worship are a pretense. Um, I found that I'm just not genuine. So I've uh, decided to try repentance first. And I found that that is 
in fact, is cleansing. Far more cleansing than anything else. I've thought that maybe I could have piety before patience, sabr. So I, in fact, thought, well, I'll teach myself to pray more and fast more um, before I learn patience. But I discovered that uh, when you do that, that um, somehow you learn to compartmentalize things. So you can worship much more, but you continue being superficial and foolish. Um, and you continue to take the world on your own pace rather than the pace that is higher than yourself. In other words, you try to bend time to your will rather than accept time as it's given to you. So I discovered in, in my experience that wara, piety, is not possible without accepting that I can't bend time, I can't take shortcuts, I can't rush things, I can't have people bend to my will. But in order for people not to bend to your will, you have to learn patience. Patience. Um, I maybe had an interesting experience with Zohud, all Sufi, all, pa all spiritual paths tell you Zohud is important. In my experience, I, I found that Zohud, Zohud is uh, abstinence, not, not caring about material things. Um, you can trick yourself. Um, you can have yourself care a lot about insignificant things and become obsessed by them. As the big items you learn to let go of. Um, so, but it is really what is in your heart. It's not, it's really what is in your heart. So, you, you, and the, the path to Zohud is to the remembrance of death, is to, um, it's very it's it's actually quite painful because you you think a lot about where all this stuff is going to go as you die and um it is true you can't take it with you so who cares um i guess i could i mean i fantasize every now and then of writing a book about the past but then i thought it's very self-indulgent and um, people better than myself should do that. Uh, who cares about my past? Um, but yeah, I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's sure. Yeah. It's interesting that you put 
Mushahada as the ninth uh, step, um, and I have a sense that when you mention it in the tafsir, you didn't like fully expand on what you mean by mushahada, because in the Sufi ish tafsir, like mushahada wa mashhud is referring to a shahada uh, like witnessing divinity or divinity divinity witnessing itself mm-hmm. um and and typically also when you see the stages of the maqamat they end in some sort of uh ahad right mm-hmm. like the so do you see this um the, the mushah like you've really emphasized like this moral aspect of mushahada is that sort of part and parcel of uh, this spiritual state no uh, the the that summarize the question sorry. yeah well Rami is pointing to something in, in Sufi tafsirs not Sufi-esque but like real Sufi tafsirs like Jilani and um, Ismail Haqqi or you know things like that uh, they they say that the Shahid and Mashhud are both the witnesser the witnesser and the witnessed are Allah uh, I didn't uh, elaborate on that, and I because I don't. Um, it's an esoteric path um, that, in my own humble belief, is that it goes too far. Uh, because it 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 all premised on the on the idea of halul, on the idea that of of the beloved withering away in or the, lo- the lover withering away in the beloved, and that's not my path. Um, I don't believe in halul. I don't believe in attahad. Um, I, I, I don't believe it's possible, but I also don't believe it's moral. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Allah, and as long as we are physical entities, we cannot Unite, can we cannot pretend to be one with Allah. Um, and I think it maybe people like Halaj and or you know if there are a few exceptions that have achieved it, although you know I didn't know them personally, but um, it, it's a dangerous path. There are many people that claim that they have achieved that status. Um, and then you discover that really all they do, have done is that they projected themselves onto God. Uh, I, I would never dare claim in any way, shape, or form that for myself, and I'm very skeptical of anyone that claims it. Al-Hulul uh, wal-Ittihad is something that I part ways with a lot of Sufi tariqism. Um, for and that is why for mushahada for me is is not. Um, this is not a, a, a shahada because mushahada is something different. Mushahada is when you Allah graces you 
with the experience of which we've talked about in Surah Taha. Um, of a life transforming of ex experience when you your entire being is transformed because you were allowed to see something of divinity. What is it other than it is the most magnanimous and earth-shattering, luminous thing that you've seen? Uh, you're never the same after it and you long for it for the rest of your life, uh, you know, as much as Allah. But that is what I mean by Mushahab. It is very hard work purifying and cleansing for the ultimate experience in Iman, where finally you have certitude beyond all possible doubt so that the idea of doubt for the rest of your lives becomes silly. Any more questions? <laughs> Do you have any? No. <laughs> All right, here's one from the interactive group. Um, would you say, historically speaking, in your vast studies, mashallah, that it is fair to say that Muslims have never persecuted non-Muslims at the same level that Christians and Jews and others have persecuted Muslims and other faith groups? Or would that be a biased claim we have as Muslims? This is not to be dismissive of what Muslims have and are doing to their own Muslim populations. Well, I mean, I, we have persecuted non-Muslims, and, and if we must uh, but because uh, but but on the scale of things the the proof is in the results um, I mean it is really people don't don't understand that um, the power of real systematic persecution all the Muslim slaves that came to the US none of them none of them within 50 years of their coming to the U.S. remained as Muslim. All of them have been converted to Christianity. Uh, it took, it took um, an amazing amount of persecution to achieve something like that. Um, Christian minorities uh, and or and and Jewish minorities and even non-Christian and non-Jewish minorities uh, continue to live in the Muslim world, well, you know, and and uh, until you know the crazies like ISIS come around. Um, that is that is a product of a, of of the very ideas of tolerance within Islam itself. That you know, it, Muslims in in Spain in and Portugal were completely eradicated. Uh, Muslims, it, it it is one of the the you know. Remember that much of Eastern Europe was under Ottoman control, 
and contrary to popular belief, um, a lot of people converted to Islam because the rulers of Eastern Europe became Muslim. And all these Muslim populations were wiped out. And when you have a Muslim population such as in Bosnia, we all know what happened to the Bosnians and all the genocides against the Bosnians that were committed ever since, just since World War I. Um, so you can't, you can't look at a historical record like that and say, oh no, you know, um, it's, yeah, Muslims pers still persecuted as much as everyone else. It's just that the people they persecuted had greater resilience. And that's why all these non-Muslim populations survived under non-Muslim rule. That's not the way things work. Uh, there, is, there is a reason that when you look at South America and you look at the, at the populations in South America and you find the entire population Christian and Catholic, and the, the, the reason is the, the, the state didn't give one a choice. You're either going to be Catholic or you're not going to live. And so, and the only reason this is not so obvious is that history was not told by Muslims. Um, it, it, it is remarkable, but so, something so obvious like the 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 absolute what did you say the the absolute wiping out of Muslims uh, after um, the end of the Caliphate and the withdrawal of the Ottomans from most of Europe, or the the massive genocides against Muslims in. Um, what used to be part of the Soviet Union and entire regions where Muslims lived got wiped out to the last human being. Or the Muslim populations that used to be part of China, uh, which have continued to shrink and shrink until I think the next 10 years. I don't know if there will be any more Muslims in China. And yet, with all the systematic and consistent and persistent persecution of Muslims throughout history, someone like Samuel Huntington can come around and have the gall to say the borders of Islam are bloody. Well, the borders of Islam are bloody because non-Muslims have not stopped persecuting Muslims ever since Muslims came to being. I mean, it is just... It can, it, if you want it, an, it, an example of, of academic hubris and arrogance and conceit, the idea the borders of Islam are bloody, well, because you keep slaughtering Muslims. That's why the borders of Islam are bloody. And Bernard Lewis, of course, you know, took it. It's like when the Israelis talk about, you know, Oh, you know, we are the victims when they are consistently massacring Palestinians every single day. You, you've taken their land, you've expelled them, they live, they've been living in refugee camps over the past 70 years, you kill them at will, and yet the narrative, the, the, the narrative that you find in academic institutions everywhere in the West 
is the Israelis the poor victims of these savage barbarians, the Muslims, the Palestinians, the Arabs, uh, the same way that the Indians talk about Kashmiris as the the barbarians. I mean, it, 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 India has been slaughtering the Kashmiris for I don't know how long. It, 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 it the people in Kashmir are cut off from the world. You, you cannot send an email if you're in Kashmir. You can't send as much as an email. Without, but yet again, the the reason Muslims continue being the the object of persecution around the world is that Muslims are still bystanders, bystanders to the telling of history. Has, has does anyone uh, uh, even talk about? holding the, the Spaniards accountable for what they've done to Muslims in Spain and Portugal. When the Hagia Sophia uh, uh, church was turned into a mosque in Turkey, the whole world still talks about it. How about all the mosques in, in, in Portugal and, and Spain? That too today are not mosques. And the Spanish government and the Portuguese government refuse to even talk about turning them into museums or anything like that, other than their status as a church. I mean, I mean it's, it's absurd. And when Muslims are oblivious to the fact that, and you, then you've got, you know, popular rock star status Muslims that say, oh, Muslims shouldn't talk about being, that they don't say that they're persecuted in the world. Really? What history have you been reading? Of course Muslims are persecuted in the world. And that's because the, the Muslims have, are not a part of the imperial structure of the world since World War I. They, they are a people without an empire, without a political power. So they are basically the, 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 the mud that the world steps on as it goes about building its material interests. Muslims are at the bottom of the world's shoes. If I was a cartoonist, that's what I would draw. I'm being shown a book, so... <laughs> oh, the ethnic cleansing of Ottoman Muslims. Actually, yeah, I've read half of this book and got distracted. This is an excellent book. It's, mm -hmm. it's called Deaths and Exile, The Ethnic Cleansing of Ottoman Muslims from 1821 to 1922, Justin McCarthy. Mm -hmm. It is actually only one of the very few books yeah. that even documents the massive genocides against Muslims um, after the Ottoman Empire. I mean, you have thousands upon thousands of Muslims that were murdered and raped and, and, and the entire world doesn't even talk about them. Oh, it's only $120 a book. <laughs> it's $120? Yeah, yeah. It's out of print. It's, it's, out, yeah, it's, it's out of print. It's a very valuable book. And, and note, again, because of the type of book it is, it's very expensive. I mean, the, what is really sad is that the books that speak the truth about Muslims 
are often so expensive. You know, in part because if you write a book that is about how Muslims massacred Armenians, it will sell thousands of copies and that brings the price down. But if you write a book about how you know, Muslims were massacred, it doesn't sell thousands of copies, in part because Muslims themselves don't read. I mean, this is the, 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 this is the part where I, my blood pressure starts like going off the roof. Okay, let's go to the next question. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, why is it Muslims don't read? I mean, what is wrong with them? Okay, don't read, just buy the book. Just buy the book to support the author. Don't read it. Just buy it and throw it away. I don't care. Just support the author. I mean, <laughs> okay. Um, can spiritual elevation occur while still being involved in contemporary culture? How do Muslims balance their social realities, cultural tastes, and the pursuit of righteousness? I mean, subhanAllah, I, I'm, listen, um, I mean, I, most, I, I've come to the United States when I was 19 years old. Um, um, and, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think that, um, I mean, I think in terms of competitive careers, I've done pretty well for myself, I think. Um, you know, so is it hard? Yes, it's very hard. It, it, does it require sometimes that you take the option of the less paying job? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, do you have to make tough decisions like, uh, you know, my classmates, the people I went to school with, you know, are already on their second or third marriage um, because they always divorce and, you know, and have on their second and third homes and, you know, have a resort home, this place and resort place while I am still going to school again, yeah, um, you make these choices about what type of life you live. Um, the hardest thing about it is that it requires discipline. It, it you know, you come home, you're tired, you don't feel like switching gears and going um, and doing dhikr, for instance, you, you really want to just sit in front of a comedy show or, or whatever show or, and just do something that's brain numbing until it's time to sleep. But you discipline and you struggle with yourself and I sincerely believe that once Allah sees that you are trying very hard, Allah helps you. Um, not just my experience, but the experience of everyone that I've known that have cho chosen this path. Allah helps you. Allah puts in your way 
things that assist you. Um, you know, it, it, some key things, um, it's, you, things are a hundred times harder if you end up with a partner in life who doesn't understand and doesn't support. Um, having a boss at work that doesn't understand doesn't compare to having a husband or a wife that doesn't understand. Uh, if you come home and the person that you're with wants to, you know, wants to have a fight with you all night uh, because you're spending too much doing, time doing dick, well, things are not going to work, obviously. It, it's much harder. Um, so choose very wisely. Uh, it's better to not have a partner at all than have the wrong type of partner. It, I you know it's um, I know that's hard to say but it, it's true I, I really believe that it's you know think about it very carefully and make it clear to everyone around you what type of person you are because the company you keep is very important um, if the word gets around to the heavens uh, that you are a person that covets purity and wants purity. Allah will put purity in your path and you will attract purity. If not, uh, you'll find all types of sleazy people cross your path and sleazy people that will entice you to do sleazy things, think in a sleazy way, desire sleazy things, and be sleazy. Um, and remember, you know, I, I am someone who is who lived his entire life in one of, arguably, one of the sleaziest professions, law. Um, if I can spend my entire career in law and and academia I don't want to trash academia I'll, try, <laughs> I'll just trash law um, yeah I mean but you, you, it, it um, you, you know there are a lot of situations that uh People are just very puzzled why you don't seem to fight with them over the things that they think really matter. Uh, it's not because you're weak, and a lot of people think you're weak, and will, you know, but if, if part of this is that you learn not to care what people think of you. Um, so, it is, and of course, you know, we, the more we Muslims can build institutions that help us, um, the more we leave an impact uh, on the world. Um, so, you know, when I became, um, 
when Allah allowed me to to be in a certain in certain positions, you know, I took that as an obligation to the extent I can to help any Muslim to 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 help any Muslim who get who needs a fair chance, so that their life is easier than my life. Then you know the. As I had to break a pathway, um, I, often I wished that there were a Muslim along the way that would would help me. But it's hard when you're a pioneer. There are no other Muslims. Okay, thank you so much for another incredible session, Alhamdulillah, and I look forward to getting together again on Saturday, Inshallah. Have a wonderful rest of the week. So, thank you. Take care.